believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Dear Father, we thank you for uh, your words that you've given to us. We just pray that you would open our hearts to understand this as you would have us to understand it, Lord. We pray that you would be with Tom, guide Tom to teach the message you'd have him to teach, Lord. We just thank you so much. In the name of Jesus, we pray. This is the kind of passage that uh, makes me both excited and terrified preach. Uh, The weightiness of this very well-known passage is far beyond anything that I can uh, adequately relate in one message, but I pray that God will, uh, will make this useful. On the surface, this passage records one particular encounter that Jesus had on one particular night with one particular man. But the passage is about the most desperate need of all mankind. And it's about the marvelous one and only solution that God has provided for that need. When Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, he had no idea that he was about to have a conversation for the ages. I'm sure he had no 
comprehension whatsoever that he was about to have what is probably the most quoted conversation in the history of the world. On one side of this conversation is a man who was convinced that his life was all about righteous devotion to God. A teacher of the things that pertain to God. And on the other side of this conversation was the one who knew without question that that man who came to talk to him was utterly condemned and knew nothing of righteousness. So this had all the makings of a really intense conversation. And it doesn't disappoint. John prefaces his record of this meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus by first making a point right at the end of chapter 2 about Jesus and mankind. Verse 23, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding the signs which he was doing. John already says toward the end of this gospel that there are a lot, a whole lot of signs, miraculous works of Jesus that he does not include in his gospel. And those were already going on and people were seeing them and they were coming to faith in Jesus. But John says in the next verses at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. That is to those who saw the signs and believed. Now that actually shouldn't surprise us all that much if we look at what all four Gospels have to say about the trustworthiness even of Jesus' closest followers, the twelve disciples. But the real point John is making here is about Jesus. It's a point that will be important for us to bear in mind as we look at every single conversation and interaction that Jesus has with people throughout this Gospel. He says Jesus did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man because Jesus knew what was in man. <laughs> now that's a, that's a very, very important statement. The next thing that John says is in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night. John is deliberately going from general to specific. <laughs> he first asserts that Jesus knows the heart of every man. And then he says, and, and there came a man. And this man was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. Now the fact that Jesus already knew his heart explains why Jesus didn't let Nicodemus determine the flow of the conversation. He never does. If you look at the conversations Jesus has with people throughout the Gospels, he's the one calling the shots. And because he's God, and because God's ways are not our ways, what people expect of those conversations when they, when they are talking to Christ isn't what they get. That's, uh, that makes perfect sense when you consider who this is. The fact that John bothers to mention that Nicodemus came to him by night is not incidental. This man, Nicodemus, had a whole lot to lose if this meeting with Jesus came to light. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, 
the highest, the supreme court among the Jews that was based at the temple in Jerusalem. In effect, all the Jews throughout the Roman Empire, that was the highest authority. But he didn't come to meet Jesus on behalf of the Sanhedrin. He came in secret. It would seem that Nicodemus was perhaps entertaining the possibility that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But that's not what he says to Jesus. What he says are words that demonstrate a prideful heart that demonstrate that he really had no idea who he was talking to. He begins the conversation by calling Jesus rabbi, and then he, he acknowledges that, that both he and the other members of the Sanhedrin had figured out that based on Jesus' miraculous works, he was a teacher sent from God. Now, they say close only counts with horseshoes and hand grenades, but Nicodemus wasn't even close. He, in effect, declares here that he has reason to consider Jesus to be his peer. It's like, Jesus, let me break the ice and, and let you know that as a teacher of the law, as a respected member of the Sanhedrin, I can encourage you by letting you know that I and the other members of the Sanhedrin have figured out that you're a, you're a teacher who bears the authority of God, you know, like us. Jesus' response to Nicodemus is a smackdown. Jesus, in effect, takes the priestly robes off of Nicodemus and clothes him in burial cloths in one statement. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you. That's how he starts the statement. By the way, when Jesus uses those words, truly, truly, I say to you, that means it's time to put your phone on do not disturb. It's time to clear the cobwebs out of your heads and listen very, very carefully. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A couple of verses later, Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus what it takes to enter into the kingdom of God. Here he's telling him what it takes to see the kingdom of God. In Luke 17, when the Pharisees questioned Jesus about when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus said to them, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's right here. See, the kingdom is all about its king. And the king was standing right in front of those Pharisees in Luke, and he was standing right in front of Nicodemus on this evening in John chapter 3. In the phrase, unless one is born again, the word one is the word anyone. Jesus is addressing one man, but in spite of Nicodemus's understanding that he was special, that he had great status in the eyes of men, that he was a respected teacher, Jesus just lumps him together with all the rest of mankind. And he says, unless 
anyone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You do not have the eyes to see the kingdom of God or to recognize its king unless you are first born again. See, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he's blind because he's dead. Spiritual regeneration precedes spiritual sight. In John chapter 1, in the prologue to this gospel, verses 4 and 5, John said, In Jesus, in Him, was life, and the life was the light of men. The life was the light. So you can't see until you have light. And because the life is the light, you don't get the light until you have the life. Spiritual regeneration precedes spiritual sight. The word translated again here in the phrase born again can mean again or it can mean from above. And because Jesus is the master of taking words with double meaning and meaning both, that's the way I take it here. Unless one is born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was blind because he was dead. The declaration that all men start out spiritually blind was not new. The ignorance of Nicodemus and his Jewish cohorts on the Sanhedrin about the fact that men are spiritually blind was not due to silence on God's part. (laughs) In fact, it was just proof of their blindness. A thousand years earlier, David in Psalm 14 said these words. Listen to this. There is no one who does good. Yahweh has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands, who seeks after God. And here's what he saw. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. If those words sound familiar, it's because the Apostle Paul cites that psalm in Romans 3 when he's making the case that it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are dead. You are lost in your sin. Your mouth is closed and you are accountable before God with nothing to offer to Him. Nicodemus proceeded to prove himself to be a poster child for Jesus' point about spiritual blindness with his next words. He said, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? It was almost as if Nicodemus was mocking Jesus. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, I had a whole bunch of things I was going to say about the meaning of the phrase born of water. And they're worth saying, they're worth looking at. But we'd be here far too long if I, if, if I took all my outtakes and turned them into intakes. I decided to keep the focus where I believe Jesus keeps it. Verse 6 explains verse 5. The two verses are parallel. 
I'll read them together. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. However you define born of water, it has to do with our fleshly existence, our physical existence, our cursed existence on this earth, our unclean existence. And the solution for it is a birth that isn't of this earth. It isn't fleshly. It isn't about the things that are cursed. It comes from God. That's the essence of what Jesus is declaring. There's a lot of detail behind it, but that's the essence. In John chapter 1, again, in the prologue, John said this, Jesus was in the world and the world was made through Him and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. But some did receive Him. It says, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. And then in the next verse, He tells you how someone gets into that second category. He says, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And he's doing the same thing there that he's doing here with Nicodemus. You can spend all day parsing out the distinction between born of blood, born of the will of the flesh, born of the will of man, but those are all about this existence. They're all about the cursed, fleshly condition of man in his unredeemed state. And the birth that we must have in order to stand before God is, a, is the one that is... <laughs> but of God. It's His doing. And that's what this passage is entirely about. A birth that is of God's doing. The birth that brought us into this cursed world did not give us real life. The birth that gives us real life, the life that is Jesus, is the birth of the Spirit, not of the flesh. And no man has that life until God gives it to him. That life, that life is the light of men. You cannot see God. You cannot know God. You cannot stand in the presence of God until He gives you the life that is the light of men. The world tells us that we're all born basically good, right? That the bad stuff in the world has to kind of beat the good out of us to make us bad. But God says exactly the opposite, right? He says that we are all born in Adam. We're born in sin. We are eternally separated from God and we're utterly helpless to do anything at all about it. Now a Jew in Jesus' day, especially a highly placed one like Nicodemus, put a very high value on his birthright as a Jew. The Jews believed that they had it all, right? They were the stewards on this earth of the knowledge of God, of the law, and the prophets, and the covenants, and the priesthood, and the sacrifices. They didn't believe they needed a Savior. They believed they were the Savior of the world. They were the mediators of the knowledge of God to the Gentiles, those poor Gentiles. Right? Wrong. 
They were as lost and as dead in sin as everybody else. The Old Testament, if you actually read it, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about Nicodemus. <laughs> if, if he actually paid attention to what was in the, New, the Old Testament, here's what he'd find. It's one long, constant indictment of God against His covenant people. Over and over and over. Accusations by God of Israel's stubbornness, rebellion, idolatry, chronic infidelity toward God. The only way for a Jew to read the Old Testament and conclude that he was born into a right relationship with God is if he's blind. And that's what Nicodemus was and that's what all men are. Every man, woman, and child until God gives us the life which is the light of men. You must be born again from above. In verses 7 to 10, Jesus goes on to say to Nicodemus, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? By the way, those are the last words of Nicodemus in this conversation. How can these things be? All this talk about the wind blowing where it wants to go and the need to be born again and born of the Spirit left Nicodemus just baffled. He didn't know what to do with all this. And Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? That is a smackdown. Jesus was putting this man in his place and that's very, very gracious when God does that. How would Nicodemus have had any context for understanding these seemingly mysterious things that Jesus was saying? Wasn't Jesus expecting a little too much from this poor guy? <laughs> but he wished he hadn't come to this meeting. If your Bible has cross-references in the margin, look and see if uh, see what's in the margin for... John chapter 3, verse 5 and verse 8. Just look there real quick. Look at the cross-references for John 3, verse 5 and verse 8. How many of your Bibles show references to Ezekiel 36 and 37? Okay. I know NASB does, ESV does, I think NET does. There are many that, that make those references. Now, what are those two chapters about? Well, they're about Jesus. They're about the New Covenant. They're about God cleansing sinful, spiritually dead Israel whose hearts were hardened against Him. It's about God taking those hard hearts, hearts of stone, and replacing them with hearts of flesh inclined toward God. It's about God putting His Holy Spirit in Israelites, giving them life, making them walk in His commandments. Those chapters talk about God gathering His divided people and reuniting them, putting them in the special place that He promised to their forefathers, and setting over them a ruler who is the perfect shepherd king in the line of David. And it says God will come to dwell in the midst of His people and He will be their God and they will be His 
people forever. In other words, these two chapters of Ezekiel are about Jesus. The promised Messiah. The Son of David. The King of Kings. And about His kingdom. And those are chapters that a leader and teacher of Israel like Nicodemus should have known very well. But see, the problem with those chapters is that they first talk about Israel's sin. They talk about Israel's absolute failure during the time that they were taken into captivity to honor God. They accuse Israel of profaning God when they were in the midst of of their captivity. And the Jews, the Jewish leadership, didn't like to pay a lot of attention to passages that indicted them. And so they had to pick and choose carefully because most of the passages in the Old Testament indict Israel. If there's one simple reality that pervades those magnificent prophecies in Ezekiel 36 and 37, it is that when God comes to save, He gives light, He gives life and light to men who are dead and blind. He gives life and light to men who are dead and blind. His salvation is all His doing. It is none of ours. It is as utterly outside of our control as the direction and force of the wind. Ecclesiastes 11.5 says, Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the, in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. God does not create at man's bidding. And He does not save at man's bidding. He gives life, beloved, He gives life not to the righteous, not to the willing, not to the seeking, because there are no such people. He says there aren't. He gives life to the lifeless and sight to the blind. That's the rebirth that Jesus told Nicodemus He Desperately needed. In Ezekiel 37, there is an amazing passage about God breathing life into into the lifeless, dry, dead bones of Israel. God gives Ezekiel a vision of those dry, dead bones of the Israelites scattered across a vast valley. And He commands Ezekiel to speak to those bones on His behalf, on God's behalf. And as I read some of the words that God told this prophet to speak, I want you to listen for the themes that Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 3, because they're all over this passage. Verse 4, Ezekiel 37, 4, again, God said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and I'll put breath in you that you may come alive. And then you will know that I am Yahweh. Not before. Because dead men don't know anything. And so Ezekiel did what God told him to, he said what God told him to say. And he stood there and he watched and he looked at this vision and he looked at this valley of dry bones and all of a sudden the bones came together and 
started to form human skeletons, and then there was muscle tissue, and there was flesh. He said, but there was no breath in them. God said to him, prophesy to the breath, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. And they got that right. Ezekiel says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, and I will cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Not before, because dead men don't know anything about God. You will know that I am Yahweh when I have opened your eyes and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. He says it twice. And then listen, listen. And I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. Where does the life come from? The spirit. You have to be born of the spirit to have life. And you have to have life to have sight and knowledge of God. He says, I will place you on your own land. And listen, last, last verse is the best. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it. How much of the marvelous salvation promised in that amazing passage is accomplished by men? None. Because dead men don't have anything to offer to God. How much of the amazing salvation promised in that passage is initiated by men? None of it. Because dead men can't initiate anything. God laid out the spiritual deadness and blindness of Israel through His prophets long before He sent His Son to save them out of that deadness and blindness. It was not because of silence on God's part that a teacher of Israel like Nicodemus didn't know these things. Jesus said, the Pharisees at one point, you err because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. That is where the error comes from. And that's just the fruit of sin. That ignorance, that willful ignorance, that casting off of what God has actually said is nothing but the fruit of, our, of the sin with which we were infected the day we were born. Starting verse 11, Jesus moves from the problem to the solution. Up to this point, he's been, been talking about what he calls in the next few verses earthly things. And he's going to start talking about heavenly things. The earthly things have to do with the lost condition of men, with the failure of our flesh, of our fleshly birth to make us right with God, and with the failure of any motivation, any activity that comes from the flesh to make us right with God. Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you don't understand when I tell you about earthly things, how are you going to understand 
if I tell you about heavenly things. But now Jesus, the one who didn't merely come from God as a teacher, as Nicodemus had it, but actually descended from heaven, who alone knows the ways of His Father perfectly, proceeds to tell Nicodemus heavenly things. Things about God's astounding gift to dead, blind human beings. He proceeds to tell Nicodemus why he came, why Jesus came. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus makes a direct reference to an event in the ancient history of Israel from the days of Moses that's recorded in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. Now why do you think Jesus points back to something as seemingly obscure as the incident involving the lifting up of the bronze serpent in the wilderness? The answer to that question is vitally, critically important because it goes right to the heart of why Jesus had to die and why you have to believe in Him in order to live. What was going on there in Numbers? Well, the Israelites had just been complaining bitterly yet again (laughs) about having nothing to eat but manna from heaven every single day. They were complaining about wandering around in the wilderness looking for a place they weren't even sure existed, a promised land, or they weren't ever, weren't even sure that they could actually inhabit. And they were complaining to God about Moses, the leader, the human leader that he had given them. And this was all old hat by this point. God took all of those complaints to be complaints against him. And so he sent fiery serpents into the camp of Israel and they were biting people. And everybody that was bitten would die. And so the people cried out to Moses. All of a sudden Moses is the, is, you know, important again. And they say, do something about this. Pray for us. And so Moses prays and God tells Moses, okay, you make a likeness of a fiery serpent in bronze and you put it on a staff and you lift it up and everybody in Israel who's bitten by the snakes and looks upon that serpent will live. They won't die from the venom. Anyone who had been bitten who did not look upon the bronze serpent was already as good as dead. He was just waiting for the venom to finish doing its deadly work. He could cry out for mercy all he wanted. He could do as much good stuff as he could muster in hopes of pleasing God. But he was already bitten. The venom was already in him. And the bite was always fatal. Most religions that believe there is a God to whom men are, human beings are accountable most of those religions also say that we are judged at some level based on what we do. If we're good, we don't get bitten. We get to go and be in nirvana or have oneness with the universal essence or whatever. And if we're bad, then there's some sort of at least temporary setback, right? But what if we've all already been bitten and the bite is always eternally fatal? 
What if we've all sinned against our perfectly holy God and the curse that He has imposed upon us because of that sin is eternal death and that curse has already been applied to every single one of us? What if the venom is already in us? It's not do good from now on and you'll be fine. It's too late for that. We're already bitten. John 3.16 is probably the most quoted verse in the whole Bible. Certainly the one that appears at the most football games. I'm going to read it together with the verse right after it. Verse 17. For God so loved the world, that means He loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You ever heard that verse before? And then... For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through Him. Isn't that nice? If you rip those two verses out of context, which a lot of people do, you can easily end up with a good news only gospel that is exceedingly dangerous. Not because those verses are false. They're true. But they're just part of the truth of the gospel without the context that comes immediately before those two verses and immediately after those two verses, it would be very easy for anyone hearing just those two verses to believe a partial gospel that cannot save because it does not first condemn. You cannot possibly be trusting in the salvation provided only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ if you don't agree with God about why Jesus had to die for you. Why He had to be lifted up on the cross. Guys, the reason Jesus didn't come to judge when He came from heaven to earth the first time wasn't because we weren't worthy of judgment. It was because we were already judged. We were already bitten. He's going to come and judge. But it is pure grace that God sent Him here the first time. Because when He came the first time, He came to save those who were already condemned. We're headed, apart from that first coming of Jesus, apart from Him being lifted up on the cross, we're all headed toward inevitable, eternal judgment. And there's not a single thing that we can do about it. None of us. If that's not part of your gospel, you need to change your message. Everyone who looks to Jesus in faith as God's one and only provision lifted up on the cross to save lost, dying sinners will not perish, but will have eternal life. But verse 18 is absolutely critical. I wish just once somebody would put John 3.18 on a banner in the end zone of the Super Bowl. Verse 18 says that everyone, absolutely everyone who does not believe in Jesus has been judged already. Already bitten. Because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. There's only one solution. The greatest error I committed in my gospel presentations early in my Christian life is, is that I made the, the good news really clear and often left the bad news not so clear. 
Don't be guilty of that error. If, you don't get any, if, you, if this passage is so familiar to you that you don't get anything else out of it, don't be guilty of that error. There are people all over the place calling themselves Christians. Perhaps some of them are, and they're confused. But they're saying things like, oh, you can, you can do that, that homosexual thing if that's the way you were born, and you're all right with God. The problem with that is that it removes the need for Jesus to be lifted up on the cross. I don't believe Christians need to go around making one sin worse than their own. Making somebody else's sin worse than their own. That's, that, that's not good. There needs to be a humility in the message, in the preaching of the gospel that says, I'm as condemned as you are, apart from Christ. And, and I have life because of what He did for me. And that's it. That's the only reason I have life. But beloved, if we tell people that sin is not sin... We're saying Jesus didn't need to be lifted up. We're saying you're not really bitten. That's the most unloving thing that a Christian can possibly do to another person. See, the world says Christians are unloving because they talk about sin. The most unloving thing that you can do as a Christian is not to talk to people about sin and righteousness and judgment. Because if you water down their need for, for the Savior, you deny the need for Christ to be lifted up on that cross. You deny the truth about sin and righteousness and judgment. You don't want to be guilty of that. People will often happily nod and agree with you when you say, if you believe in Jesus, you can be saved. But here's the acid test. Ask them what they deserve from God. Many of those same people that are happily nodding will flatly deny that they deserve hell. And brothers and sisters, those people are not saved. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus had to be lifted up at the cross. He had to die in our place and be raised from the dead. And you have to believe in Him in order to be saved. If you do not, you are judged already. You're already bitten. And you're just waiting to, for that death to be fully realized. You must look upon Jesus Christ who was lifted up crucified to pay the eternal penalty that you owed to God. You must look upon Him, trust in Him alone, and be saved forever. That's the message, beloved. That's the message that we bear to this world. Let's bear it without apology because it's what people need. The last three verses, I'll do this quickly, in verses 19 to 20, uh, first 19 to 20, and then I'll get to 21. Jesus spells out one more time the simple truth about all men that leaves us utterly condemned and in need of God's salvation. He says, this is the judgment, the one that sticks to all of us until Christ saves us, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. How many people start out in that category as lovers of darkness and haters of light? 
All of us and all of them. We hide from the light because we don't want evil deeds to be shown to be evil. We want God to get out of our way so we can live on our own terms. Jesus concludes His statement to Nicodemus with a very a wonderfully positive statement in verse 21. He says, But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. <laughs> One of the most beautiful and amazing distinctions between an unbeliever and a believer is that a believer loves the light. He loves for his deeds to be exposed to the light. An unbeliever is like a roach, like a, a gang of roaches in the darkness. You turn the light on and Right? But a believer, when he sees that light, he goes toward it. He loves that light. He loves it when his deeds are manifested as having been wrought in God. And when anything that's not wrought in God is shown to be false and put away. That's what the believer loves. He loves the light. He comes to the light. You and I, beloved, every day of our lives as children of God, we come in faith to the light that our deeds may be shown to be wrought in God. When God grants a man or a woman spiritual birth through simple faith in Jesus, He plucks that person out of the darkness. He breathes the life of His Holy Spirit into him and He makes him see Jesus. He makes him see Jesus and trust in Jesus alone. From that day forward, we love the light. Dear Father, thank You for telling us clearly that we are all dead and blind apart from Jesus Christ, already bitten and headed for eternal condemnation. But You demonstrated Your amazing love for us in that while we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were helpless and hopeless and lost and dead, Jesus died for us. He is our life. He's our Savior. He's the one. It's His name, Father, that we exalt. Amen.